The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I am struggling to hear, John. I have to be honest. I'm not sure how much of a conversation I can have with a man I can't hear. No, it's gone, isn't it? I can hear John perfectly well now. Really? You can. I can hear all three of you perfectly. Well, it's typical that on the Scottish version of the podcast... Paddy is the only one to have perfect hearing in both ways. Yeah, because it's about Scotland, we just record a 10-minute version. <laughs> I'll just hum Scotland the Brave in the background. All right, gents. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, let's go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. This one, a special edition in its own way. It's the Patrick Barclay Memorial Edition <laughs> in honour of when he's still alive, which is even better. And we're doing it because, you know, I did tell everybody that we so appreciate the emails we get from you and your suggestions for future programmes. And one of them is from David Fairholme, who is a Nottingham Forest supporter, but is in charge of all the Nottingham Forest supporters in the whole of Scotland. Which raises the question, of course, of how many that might be, but we haven't been given that particular information. And on my very first list of topics for Series 1 was, was in fact, the, the, the question, what's happened to the great Scottish players of the past? Law and Crerand and Gilzean and Bobby Johnston, who made City tick in the 1950s. Can anyone believe that Liverpool in the 1980s would have been the side they were without Souness? Hansen and Dalgleish, where have they gone? Anyway, David Fairholme writes to us saying the following. When Forrest won the cup in 1959, five of the team were from Scotland. Chick Thompson, the goalkeeper from Perth, had already won the league with Chelsea in 54-55. Joe McDonald and Johnny Quigley, both around the west of Glasgow. Man of the match, Stuart Imlach from Lossiemouth. And finally, club stalwart gentleman Bobby McKinley from Loch Gelly made 684 appearances, a club record. Now, turn the clock forward to 1980, and the final whistle blows at the Bernabeu. On the pitch for Forrest is Frank Gray, Kenny Burns, John O'Hare, John McGovern, and the mercurial John Robertson, supported by the Irishman Martin O'Neill and five Englishmen. Well, six if you include Kevin Keegan. And there are many a Saturday now when I check the Scottish Premiership results, and not a single Scottish-born player is registered on the score sheet. Busby, Steen and Shankly were all born within 40 minutes of where I now live. Baxter and Law appeared in a World Eleven in 1963 against England at Wembley, so somebody must have played up here once upon a time. All of which confirms my feeling that 
Scotland as a basket case, but it's not apparently not true. I wrote to my friend Derek Emsley, whom I met on the first day at university, and I asked him the question, and he replied saying, certainly the belief in the country now is that we have more talented players emerging again than in the recent past. Hickey, Patterson, Robertson, Tierney, McGinn, Gilmore, and so on. And the international side is beginning to show some form. Strangely, it may be getting more difficult to tell the difference between a Scotsman and a ray of sunshine. <laughs> so, Paddy, the question is, what happened to Scotland for so long? And is it really on the, on the way back? Well, to answer the last question first, I'm cautiously optimistic there may be some sense of revival. I think we have a sprinkling of good players now. And the lovely thing is that one or two of them are of the Scottish tradition. Billy Gilmore and John McGinn could have been in the Wembley Wizards, you know, the 1923. I mean, these low centre of gravity, small players playing pure football. So there are navy blue shoots of recovery. I wouldn't want to bet on it because I've spoke to Graham Spears, a very distinguished Scottish journalist, just a few hours before we sat down to record this. And he confirmed an opinion that I've long held, that the change in Scottish football's output is largely to do with the change in Scottish society. Cliché alert, I'm about to say the decline in street football, natural football, playing football in difficult conditions, in the alleyways, in the mining villages. But you might say, <coughs> Paddy, every country has industrialised, become more prosperous, children play on Xboxes, or whatever they play on these days, and don't play street football for various reasons. Now, that is true. So why hasn't it happened in England? Why hasn't the same drought come through diversity of opportunity in England? The answer is England's protected by its population. Every time you think German football is in terminal decline, a new generation of good ones come along. The same is true in England. They have just so many good players that it's very difficult for them to drop out of the top 10 of world football. Brazil is protected in the same way. It's got the largest population in South America. What Spears said, he said that there was a thing called Andy Murray syndrome. When Andy Murray came along, the Scottish people realised there are other games but football. The old days when we set world attendances records, despite having this small population, have gone. And now... We've woken up and realised that there's more than football and golf, perhaps. You can play tennis, you can do rock climbing, you can do this, you can do that. And while that's better for people as a whole, it's not good for the great game because it further weakens the pool. So I think it's largely a question of numbers. If we could produce out of a male population of two and a half million, 25,000 half-decent footballers a year, we would produce enough really decent footballers to have a team that would be competitive on the national stage. John, what's your feeling about Scottish football then and now? My overriding feeling is that the league in Scotland, from when I and Paddy were growing up, it wasn't dominated by Rangers and Celtic as it is now. Unfortunately, it appears to me to be a pretty pathetic league. I don't Celtic win by absolute miles. It, of course, reached its apotheosis when Rangers went bust or whatever they did. Yeah. And there was no competition at all. Yeah. Whereas, Paddy, you remember Dundee winning the league. Yeah. Hibs won the league. 
Two years before Dundee won it, Kilmarnock won it. It's not only players, you know, it's managers. There were a lot of Scottish managers. Mm. You mentioned Nottingham Forest, of course. Billy Walker mm. was the manager of that Forest team and so on. And a lot of the managers were Scottish at that point. Yes. Well, Scottish managers bring forth Scottish players because, you know, we had a Scottish manager of the first 13 years of my life, a man called Les McDowell. And he brought, apart from Bobby Johnson, who was a great player, no questioner, mm. although he did try to sue me for inferring that he, he liked more than a glass of dry white wine occasionally. <laughs> well, I think you could have called about 50,000 people as witnesses. That was the point, that when he did try legally to, to have me convicted and banged up, and I asked Mike Summerby, I mean, am I telling an untruth that Bobby Johnson liked the occasional drink? He said, Bill Spurdle, whom he knew was an old city player, his job was at 20 to 3 to scour the pubs around Main Road <laughs> to get him out of there, get him into his clothes and get him onto the pitch by 5 to 3. That was his job. So I don't think he, I would have actually been in the dock. Work the curse of the drinking classes. Yeah, could yeah, quite. Say. I can remember that we mentioned before Jock Wallace. He came down to Leicester and this was in the period where Scotland weren't doing very well brought down a load of Scottish players, some of whom went on to be actually very good players. Ian Wilson, Kevin MacDonald mm -hmm. were very, very good players in that side. Leicester tried it again, bringing down Craig Levine. He brought a lot of players down from Scotland, but they weren't anything like the standard required then. And it had really fallen, yeah. the standard, during that period. I mean, you've identified the domination by Rangers and Celtic. I mean, before the Second World War, Rangers and Celtic dominated just as much as they do now, largely. But there was a sort of wonderful period after the Second World War when there was genuine diversity in Scottish football. So... In a way, that was a, a wonderful, wonderful aberration, that 20 to 30 year period. But now we go back to the duopoly between Rangers and Celtic. What makes it even worse in terms of the reputation of Scottish football is that Scottish players are a relative rarity in those teams, have been for the last 10 years. At the moment, you look at Celtic, you think it was a Japanese team because they're better players. And these are not necessarily the very top level of Japanese players. But if you're in the second grade of Japanese players, that's the kind of area where Rangers and Celtic rightly do their buying. There's no money in Scottish football because here are two clubs, and it's tempting to demonise them, but I feel sorry for them. I genuinely feel sorry for them. They built up 60,000 virtually every week. In Rangers' case, 50,000 every week, but both are full houses. And yet their TV revenue is tiny. So they can only buy the one level down Japanese players or buy clever. Hence, they found Mark Viduka, they found Henrik Larsson, Virgil van Dijk. They get these players at a good price. And the English ones, they can say, well, no problem at all. You get promoted from the English Championship. You've got 120 million. Rangers and Celtic, even though they are twice the size of the clubs that get promoted to the English Premier League, they can't look at those players. They have to compete, sometimes on unequal terms with championship sides in England. Isn't the problem that we have in this country, in the so-called United Kingdom, pretty disunited these days, but there's <laughs> this concession. We have four sides. We have Northern Ireland, we have Scotland, England and Wales. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't happen in other places. Even when the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union, they only had Russia. 
Yeah, the Ukrainian and Georgian players would play for Russia. Correct. Sorry, but play for the Soviet Union, but it was Russia. Yes. Now, there was a cry for Rangers and Celtic to join the Premier League. And obviously, in terms of fan base numbers, mm. yes, they have a bigger fan base than many, many Premier League clubs. Mm. But the problem is then FIFA turned around and said, ah, but if you do that, that's the end of your special yeah. status mm. as a separate nation in world competition. Mm. And how many of your countrymen, Paddy, now would say, OK, we'll have a United Kingdom team to mm. play in the World Cup and the Europeans. Sadly, there is this sort of divide between the countries, mm -hmm. regional divide, yeah. and the football hasn't helped it. We talked in an earlier edition about the derby games, and England-Scotland was a derby game, grudge match, yeah. and so on and so on. Yes. You compare us with Spain, where Barcelona represent Catalonia, and Madrid represent Castilla and the rest. This does exist in other countries, but Catalonia aren't a different football side. They're not a different nation. No. The achievement of Spain in recent years was to come together as a nation, wasn't it? They had players from Catalonia, they had players from the Basque Country, mm. and they had players from Castile, and they all joined together and to they form joined that together. brilliant Spanish side, one of the best sides I've seen in my lifetime, Me too. Uh, to be honest. When Me Celtic too. and Rangers join in the European football mm. and they're drawn against English Premier League sides, by and large, they get taught a lesson, don't they, Paddy? I know. Yeah. No, no, I don't think that's quite... Uh, I can remember a team with McCoyst and Haightley up front, uh, a Rangers team. McAllister was playing for Leeds. They got beaten home and away by Rangers one year. Well, that's 30 years ago, we're talking. Yes, yes. And again, you know, this takes us back to the good old days. I can remember Dunfermline got to a European semi-final back in the... Early 60s. And among the teams they beat along the way was a very good Everton side and West Bromwich, who were both, you know, the equivalent of Premier League sides. Mm. Now that, as you rightly say, you wouldn't expect today's Dunfermline to be competitive with even a championship side. So your point is made. But... I think that the, you were talking before about the future of Rangers and Celtic. It is farcical that they play in Scotland. And I don't know many fans of the team other than Rangers or Celtic who wouldn't cry with pleasure if Rangers or Celtic were admitted to a league outside the borders of Scotland. Myself, I don't think they should be allowed to gain admission to the English Premier League. Perhaps the conference or something would be more fair that even conference sides might object to that. I think what, what I would like to see, and it's often been mooted, is a, some kind of Atlantic League with yeah. Dutch, Portuguese, Belgian, Denmark, and Scottish clubs all playing together. And that would produce, I think, a good TV revenue. The idea that clubs must play in their own league, one, wouldn't survive a legal test, in my opinion. And two, what about Monaco? They play in the French League, but they're not in France. Berwick Rangers in the old days, an English club playing in the Scottish League. I mean, I know I'm picking fairly thin pieces of evidence, but it isn't laid down in the heavens that you can't have cross-border leagues. And I'd certainly think an agglomeration league, like that Atlantic one we've just talked about, would be wonderful. It would solve the Rangers-Celtic problem. And I think it would also be nice for the Anderlecht the Ajax, the Feyenoords, Copenhagen, FC Copenhagen. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the clubs in Denmark 
deserve a chance to expand almost as much as Rangers and Celtic do. So I think it would be good for good for them. And I think most Scottish fans, I would cry with joy if Rangers and Celtic found a more appropriate milieu in which to ply their trade. And then Hearts and Hibs and Aberdeen would have a chance of, of winning things again. Yeah, but would they get much of a crowd? I mean, most of them survive up there in revenue terms on the visit of Celtic and Rangers. Hearts and Hibs more or less sell out every week. But you're right, generally speaking. But the Rangers and Celtic can be exaggerated. I mean, if you're playing at home to Rangers and Celtic, that doesn't mean you're going to have a great atmosphere at the game. It really doesn't. It means you're going to have one of your four stands full. That's all it Mm. means. I mean, my team, all that lies ahead of us is a couple of right good batterings in front of our own fans who will be streaming away 20 minutes before the end. It's just awful. It's just awful. And... It's greatly to the credit of Scottish football that it's as good as it is because it's a terribly depressing environment. One thinks of the, you know, going back to our youth and, and there was scarcely an English first division club that was any good that didn't yeah, let's, have. Let's talk about the past. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, in comparison to the present, it draws the contrast. Yes, it, well. does. it There's does. almost, I can't think of it, maybe Arsenal in 70-71. Did they have a, a Scottish player? George Graham. And Frank McClintock. Of course. Eddie Kelly. Eddie Kelly, yeah. Yeah, okay. So even they had three. There was a Man City team that was extraordinary because it didn't have a Scot in it. That was when we won in 68. They were all English. That's right. 11 English. And there was a Liverpool team that had 11 English. But, I mean, by and large, yes, every team did. I mean, let's talk about great teams. My favourite English team of all time, the Spurs double team. The goalkeeper, Bill Brown, was from Dundee, one of the best Scottish goalkeepers. Dave Mackay often considered one of the, the great players of all time anywhere, came from Hearts. And the, the rather tragic John White, who was a magnificent, a schemer, a creative midfield player who more or less guaranteed 25 league goals a season, league goals while scheming. They talk about Hoddle and Lampard. This guy was as good, well, was as prolific. And he died tragically while still a player when he was caught in a downpour on a golf course in North London and sheltered under a tree which was hit by lightning. So there's three of the finest players came from Scotland. And then you talk about Leeds United and the names of Bremner, Eddie Gray. Peter Lorimer? Of course, Peter Lorimer. And David's letter that you read out earlier, you know, if you go slightly down the ladder or something, Nottingham Forest, although I saw them finish second in the league once, when Bobby McKinley played. And God, what a castigation it is on the Scottish selection system that he never had a cap, Bobby McKinley. What a player. Never sweated, I don't think. He was so astute in his reading of the game. They always said at Manchester United in the 1960s mm. that when Paddy Creran played well, United played well. He that was the fulcrum of the side. That was I mean, true. Dennis Law and Best and John took the start, but Creran was so significant. Did you know that an even more talented player than Paddy was Jim Baxter? And Matt actually went to Dennis and said, look, there are two players from the old firm who are available at the moment, and I think we could get either of them, which would you prefer? And Dennis told him that Jim Baxter was a better player, but that he'd much rather have Paddy Creran, because Paddy Creran was more likely to be playing every week. Because Jim Baxter had what might be called Bobby Johnston syndrome. 
Yes. You know, he liked a good piss-up. That's what Dennis said. Paddy Crerand is, is almost as good, but he's certainly a lot more reliable. And Jim Baxter would have been a disaster, as proved the case when he went to Nottingham Forest and Sunderland. And Shankly's first Liverpool side, Ron Yates at the back and Ian St John up front. That was the lift-off for Shankly, for the Shankly yeah. era, when he read in the Weekly News, a Scottish-based paper which circulated widely in England, and he kept reading favourable reports about a centre-half called Ron Yates at Dundee United and a deep-lying centre-forward at Motherwell called Ian St. John. So he sent a scout up and signed them. And that was when Liverpool became Liverpool. Those two players gave the team a new dimension. It does raise the question also that, yes, the players came because the managers were Scottish and were that way inclined partly, to go partly. looking at that part of the world. But also, why were there so many, and for so long, Scottish managers disproportionate to the population? Because Scotland produced football men. In those days, football was a, a one-gender sport. And Scottish society produced a lot of football men, whether they were spectators or what. So in every village, people would be learning they would just do it. They would play, they would coach, they would be steeped, marinated in football from an early age. So it wasn't such a surprise as it would be now if a small country produced so many teachers of football. The other centre was, of course, the North East, which had a similar sort of culture yes, it to did. That, that you're talking about in England. It did. And also the network of teamwork and understanding of mutual dependency and again, this pertains to the northeast of England, uh, created by the mining and heavy industrial communities. So it wasn't as big a surprise as it now seems. But of course, that became less and less. I don't remember as recently as four or five years ago, there were more Scottish managers in the English Premier League than English ones. I remember thinking, that's amazing that even now, and that's peer pressure. Scotland produces a lot of managers because people think I could be Alex Ferguson one day. Is there anything different between Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, shall we say? Because they've all had their declines. Are the declines for similar reasons? I'll tell you what's similar. Welsh rugby, they used to say, whistle down a Northumberland mine and 20 professional footballers will emerge. Similarly, the same was true of the Ronda. Rugby players would just be produced. There are fewer Welsh rugby players being produced now than was the case before. So I think you could draw a sort of fairly loose parallel there. But you can ameliorate the effects of a small population by working hard at it. Look at Ireland with its rugby players. Look at Ireland with its coaching schemes are better than ours. Are we saying then that those tight working class communities out of which sprang the Scottish players, the Yorkshire fast bowlers, the Welsh rugby players, that cohesion of those communities and the nature of the working class environment in which they all grew up and played their sport, it's the disappearance of those communities that have been significant in the diminution of great players from those areas. Would that be true? I think there's definitely some truth in that. It all goes back to the Victorians and the class system and so on. You, Colin, I know, worked on that film, The English Game about football and the clash between the professionals who came down from Scotland and played for Darwin and Blackburn and the southern English clubs dominated by the Old Etonians and Lord Kinnaird and Lord Kinnaird who 
broke away from that and upset Lord Snooty and their pals by going off to play with the Bash Street kids up yeah. north, as yeah. it were. That is also reflected in cricket. If you look at cricket, it grew possibly a little bit before football, but then it had the clash between the leagues in the north and the counties in the south. And even now you find the majority of fast bowlers come from the north, yeah. from the mining communities, from Yorkshire, from Durham, from Lancashire. And the majority of the batsmen come from Surrey and Hampshire and Middlesex and so on. And that is reflected in the education system. You know, mm. the majority of English batsmen come from private education. Yeah. Stuart Broad is a freak mm. in that respect. In the, he comes from the middle and is a bowler and was privately educated. Jimmy Anderson, of course, comes out of the state system and is from Lancashire. So the class yep. system pervades throughout all sport. Yes. And it was a product of empire and everything else. And it's all historically based, isn't it? Yes. Those first professionals who came down were from Scotland. They were better players. They brought down the passing game with them. They were, but the passing game was actually invented by middle-class lads lower middle class, the Queen's Park team that made up the majority of the Scotland team in the first international in 1872. And then, of course, in Scotland, it was taken up by the working class and they became the so-called Scotch professors who taught the English how to play football properly. But that's all gone now. We've got to look at what we can do to put it right instead of, you know, moping on the past and saying how, how wonderful it was then. We've got to restore that. And that means hard work. It means investment, yes. I don't see why a Scottish government shouldn't invest in what was, and perhaps I'm old-fashioned, what was a key part of Scottish culture, what was a proud Scottish tradition for Scotland to have been so big at the beginning of organised sport, which is supposed to be something that Britain was distinguished by, for Scotland to have been so big, bear in mind the first, let's say, first 70 years of international football, had there been FIFA rankings, Scotland would have been at the top of them because they were better than England for at least half of that time. It's part of our history and it's one that I think the Scottish government should genuflect towards in its cultural... I hate calling for more spending as the answer to everything. I think that's one of the banes of our way of life these days. But... I do think somehow getting children, as many children as possible, to play football and then letting the ones who are good take excellence courses and letting the ones who are excellent become professionals is a good way of making our country healthier and more fulfilled. And that is the end of my Braveheart speech. No, it's perfectly justifiable. I feel the sense of regret that Scotland isn't as powerful a football nation as it once was. I think the competition was healthy. I think, you know, we remember again the days when the England-Scotland match was the international match which everybody wanted to win, Scotland and England. Crowds, absolutely. Do you know, there will be young people listening to us and thinking, what on earth is he talking about? Yeah, Could well, there have been such a time? But, of course, yes. we know that we lived it. We lived it. And when, when Somerby 
made his debut for England in April 1968. Mm. His first match was against Scotland in Scotland. And he remembers coming up the tunnel because he told it very well, the story. Mm. He just looked around at the crowd. It was a full house of 135,000 yeah. in those days. And it seemed as though the galleries, the terraces, reached to the heavens. Yeah. It was so full. It was so enormous. It was so overpowering. He then played not particularly well in a terrible nil-nil draw. But <laughs> nevertheless, it was a memorable day. But I bet he enjoyed the antagonist. Oh, yes. Well, he said Bobby Moore came up to him afterwards and said, they can never take that away from you, Mike. You've played for your country. It's something that you'll always treasure. So at that point, some of knew he'd never play again. <laughs> he, he did end up with eight caps one way or another. He famously played centre-forward for England, didn't he, in Germany? He did. He was a very good centre. That was the year that, that he played centre-forward and said he won the league. I don't want to yeah. get trapped in that. I can go on for some time. Mm. But let me ask about the crowds, Paddy, because yes. if you look at crowds today in Scotland, it's unbelievably poor, the meagre attendances. That's partly why there's no money in the game. Nobody goes to watch the damn thing. In the glory days that you remember, 50s, 60s, yeah. 70s maybe, yeah. in Scotland, were the crowds significantly larger than they yeah, are now? Yeah, yeah, they were. I mean, I can remember being at Dens Park Dundee during the European Cup run, the Champions League run, as I like to call it, of 1962-3, where we beat Cologne, Sporting Lisbon, Anderlecht, and before finally going out in the semi-finals to Milan. And the first game, there were 25,000 there, because we were a bit frightened of Cologne, what they'd do to us. So there was only 25,000 at that. We beat them 8-1, by the way, 8-1. It was 5-0 at half-time. And then there was 30,000 at the Sporting Lisbon game, 32,500. And then for the final two games, which were against Anderlecht and Milan, there were 40,000, which was just below the ground record. I was at that same ground a few weeks ago. It was a big match. And there was just under 7,000. And I can't remember the last time I saw a Scottish game that didn't involve Rangers or Celtic, where there wasn't an empty bank of terracing. Although we're still second only to Albania in terms of attendance per unit population. Mm. John, when Leicester were looking at scouting, was Scotland a key target area for you? It was in the 50s, certainly when David Halliday came down as manager, having won the league with Aberdeen. He came down, he recruited quite a few players from Scotland at that point, notably John Ogilvy, Willie Gardner, and they set up a system. And that's why McClintock came to us as a young player. There was a player called Ian White, who later went on to have a good career with Southampton. Ian King, the centre-half. Mm. They had quite a lot of good Scottish players. Then Matt Gillis, who took over from Halliday, also recruited up there. Notably, he recruited David Gibson, of course, who he brought down from Scotland did very well. He bought Jimmy Goodfellow from the bankrupt third Lanark team yeah. who went out of business, came down and had a good career. Then, of course, Jock Wallace, as I said, yeah. bought a lot. And Craig Levine then. So Leicester had a tradition of Scottish managers and Scottish players. Gillis, you know, in those days, it, quite often the case that Gillis didn't come to Leicester home games you can't imagine the manager now doing that. He was up in Scotland looking for new players. Yeah. He tried to sign Gilzine. He signed Bobby Roberts, of course, from Scotland, who did have a very good career. Yeah. He came from Motherwell yeah. to Leicester. So there was a regular flow 
when Leicester sold Lineker, they bought McAllister and Mocklin from Scotland as a package. Mocklin was reckoned to be the better player. McAllister, of course, you've mentioned before, went on to be a very, very distinguished player. Yeah, won the league with Leeds. Came as the make weight as a young player. But it was fairly obvious fairly early on he was going to be a top player. Ironically, of course, when Leicester finally won the league, I don't think they had a Scottish player, did they? We had an Italian manager, a Japanese forward, an Austrian uh, left-back and a German centre-half. <laughs> but there were no Scots yeah. in that side. So is Scotland just dried up with the lack of players? What percentage of the players who play in the Scottish leagues are actually Scottish? If you take what you might call a middle-range club like my Dundee, we have a lot of English players. Our first team now, most weeks, would contain one, two, three, four more or less ever-presents who are English. You know, they're kind of ones who might just scrape into League Two. But we are competing financially with the conference and not yes. necessarily the top division of the conference financially. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because there were very few English players in the 50s and 60s. The one I can remember is Joe Baker, yeah. who played for England while he played for Hibs. Yeah. But in many ways, senses he was Scottish. Yeah. But he was born by an accident yeah. south of the border, wasn't he? Yes, but this is done sort of desperately getting the cast-offs from English conference mm. clubs because actually our homebred youth system is actually functioning now. But by and large, clubs have to top up their youth system with cheap English kids who are trying to get into the shop window because they can't get a game for their sort of lowly English clubs. But this is the same club. This is my club, Dundee, that paid a Scottish record fee to sign Billy Steele back in the early 1950s. I mean, this was the guy who'd broken, when he first gone south from, I think it was Morton or something, to Derby County. Derby County had had to pay a British record fee. In other words, the equivalent of 120 million to get him. And we took him back for close on that. That's one way of sort of illustrating through the decline of one club how Scottish football has gone. Well, for example, I used to, you know, silently laugh at Irish football. And I used to think, wouldn't it be awful to be Irish? You know, and you go into every game and you lose. And then suddenly, before I knew it, we were, you know, in terms of club, we're not that far above Irish clubs now, some of ours. Rather well against Bohemians or something. That would be a competitive game now. That's how bad it is. And as far as international football is concerned, for many, many years, the Irish team was way above us in the world rankings. So we've gone from being, in the year I was born, almost a world power in football, certainly in terms of crowds and so on, to sort of like Irish. Well, the fact that there are so few Scottish players of any distinction playing today have that kind of negative reverse effect on Scottish youth. There's nobody to model yourself on. They're all foreigners anyway. Why bother? That's it. That's it. Which is terrible, really. That's why I say we have to go out and do it. It's not going to happen organically anymore. Interestingly, Paddy, yeah. talking about television, one or two of the best pundits, the best co-commentator, in uh, on the British television is Ali McCoy. Yeah. The best pundit who's just recently retired was Graham Soonis. Yes. They're disproportionately good there. Yeah. That may be something to do with the quality of the English that they speak. The education system 
is a bit different there. The clarity of what they say, yeah. I would argue, yeah. is better. And it's also because most people can hear what you say when you get your microphone sorted. <laughs> you, you can talk. As opposed to the, the nonsense I talk in, in Leicester. But joking aside, there is in that punditry area very few to touch soonest. And in the co-commentary area, very few to touch Ali McCoy. Mm. And the first one, the match of the day really specialised, was probably Alan Hansen, wasn't he? He was there for years and years Correct. and years. And much respected by everybody, I mm. seem to remember. Yes, when Hansen spoke, even when he was talking rubbish, you listened respectfully, didn't you? Yes. Although he's become famous for his misjudgment of Manchester United's class of 92, when your one error stands out, it's a kind of a mark of class, isn't it? It's a throwaway remark. You're not expected to be, th- be paying the penalty for a throwaway yeah. remark. Yeah, I mean, for luckily, the next 30 years. luckily, we on football ruin my life. We never make a mistake. <laughs> well, nobody will ever remember what we've done. <laughs> That's true. John, do you see any signs of what Paddy calls the navy blue shoots of recovery? How many players are playing in the English league, which is undoubtedly top league in Europe now? McGinn? Robertson at Liverpool. Tierney is, in my opinion, wrongly sort of a fringe player at Arsenal. He should be. Yes, correct. I mean, I'll tell you what, if I was manager of any other team in England, I'd take Tierney. Man City should take Tierney. The United wing half. McTominay, is it? Yeah, he's not bad. McTominay's from Manchester, isn't he? He's an Englishman, but he plays for Scotland, yeah. yeah. He's on the granddad rule. He's a good professional, good player. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we're, we're very lucky to have him. But... I'm a little bit more excited by Billy Gilmore. That's the kind of footballer I like to see. Yes, well, I can understand that. But you're probably not rich enough to, to have that disdain. There was a disdain for a long time for what they call the Anglos, the mm. Gilzeans, the Lords, the Crown, mm. and so on, the people who made their living in England. There was a sense in Scotland that they somehow betrayed the cause by selfishly wanting to be very well paid for the job they were doing. I suppose that disdain has gone, I would imagine. Oh, definitely, yeah. I haven't heard the word Anglo used, except in a historical sense that you've just used it. I haven't heard that kind of sniffiness for ages. Bear in mind, I was in Scotland a couple of days ago, and there were some football fans talking animatedly on the bus. They were saying, ah, we've done this and we've done that. They were talking about Man United, Man City. Another one was a Man City fan. This is Scottish lads on a bus. And they're all talking about their favourite teams and they're all English. Mm. Actually, how you mention it, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> it is. John, I suppose, can come drawing to the end. Did you ever go scouting for clients, as it were? And if you did, did you go to Scotland? Never got much beyond Colville, really, if you look at where I uh, (laughs) came from. My initial client base was Peter Shilton, Gary Lineker, David Gower, Gary McAllister came to Leicester, one or two from Forest, of course, when I moved a little bit north. It was more difficult in those days. You didn't do that so much. I did find, actually, there was a certain kind of football that came from Scotland who did have that Scottish tradition, which Paddy's talking about. It was inbred into them, the interest. A lot of the football journos were also from Scotland, were they not? Well, the best sports journalist was Hugh McIlvanny from Kilmarnock and Alex Montgomery, Ken Montgomery. I mean, when, when I was doing it, yes, there were a lot. And actually, it's funny, I never did any journalism in Scotland, not serious. But I can remember feeling like an Anglo when I went back to cover Scotland games in Scotland. I can remember sort of seeing them looking at me with a, 
I can see the chips on their shoulders. But there is one thing that you can't take away from Scotland, and I feel very passionate about it when I drive through the place. I, mean, I look at signs in Lancashire and I see Berry Bolton, Blackburn, Burnley, mm. and I, mm. I feel a warm glow of nostalgia and coming right. home. But I go to Scotland and I see the names and, and I find them almost unanimously extraordinarily romantically attractive. Yes. I mean, Queen of the South is the obvious, but yes. but there are so many, Kilmarnock and St Johnston and Forfar and Air, you know, I don't know. They all sound wonderful. Heart of Midlothian. Heart of Midlothian. There are not too many signs, Colin, mm. to Queen of the South. Yeah. No. And any minute now, <laughs> you'll be telling us about when they dance in the streets. Streets of Wraith. Yeah. Yeah. Wraith. Wraith, yes, yes. And <laughs> incidentally, how many Englishmen, if you say to them, where do Queen of the South play? Where do Wraith play? Yeah. And where do East Fife play? Yeah. We'd have no I idea. We'd have absolutely no idea. Well, what were the three clubs? East Fife. Methil. Wraith. Kirkcaldy. Queen of the South. Dumfries. Correct. Well, you as a Scotsman, if you hadn't got that right, you'd have never been back. No, I'll tell you, one of my best ever experiences, I was brought up in Dundee. Honey, what... The only question on our last year, yeah. where do Port Vale play? Burslem. Correct. But anyway, I was growing up in Dundee as a boy, football mad, absolutely football mad. And one summer's day, I was out cycling my bike up into the county of Angus, just north of Dundee. And I stopped at a road sign. And it was rather like some particularly bizarre football results, because on the roadside, it said, Brecon 6, Montrose 8, <laughs> Arbroath 7, Perth 22. <laughs> and you thought in this rural stuff all you could see was cows and rabbits and this was a hotbed of football it was like going on the m62 and feeling the rugby league history wakefield featherston yes, leeds right. bradford but the crowds even in those days at breek in 300 montrose 300. and arbroath and all that sort of thing were very low yeah just as an aside on that port vale bit when i employed kids as uh football agents they all came to see me and they all knew everything mm. about football mm. they told me mm. so i think oh yeah who's the manager of port vale the follow-up question was all right if you don't know the manager where is port vale and they went up north somewhere. <laughs> and you had to point out to them that knowing everything about arsenal or man city or tottenham mm -hmm. did not qualify as knowing everything about football yes. and that the lower leagues, if they were going to start recruiting players, was probably where they needed to look. I mean, I was fascinated by these clubs in Scotland when I was younger. Mm. My favourite club was Breakin because yes. they were useless. Yes. They were hopeless. And They're not they, in the league and then now. They had a period recently where they did quite well, but unfortunately they reverted to type and they've got relegated. I think the last I heard that they were top of the league that gets you back into the league because they dropped out yeah. of the league. But Forfar was a wonderful place to go because the, the chairman, the old chairman, he's dead now. He was the chairman for many, many years. He was a local farmer. And he not only was the chairman, he was the public address announcer. And he was taking the piss out of all the... He says, and you, that's the first time you've been here for six weeks. Yeah, bugger. <laughs> great, great atmosphere. And I think it was Brecon where as usual, four sides to the ground. And one of the sides was a hedge. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> that was Glebe Park. Glebe Park, exactly. Now, I want to finish with a reminiscence that's not mine. It's Danny Baker. I was also very charmed by this because he always thought, you know, presumably when he was six or seven, 
that if you got relegated from what was then the English Fourth Division, yeah. you went straight into the Scottish League oh. because oh, that that's was the really... end of the football results. <laughs> that's out of order, just Colin. disappeared down the table into Scotland. That's out of order. Well, talk to Danny Baker. It's not mine. What's my idea? I'll have a stern word with him. <laughs> but at this point, I think, A, we've covered the topic pretty well. And we're all slightly sad, I mean, nobody more sad than Paddy, at the decline of Scottish football. But still, yet, rather like Bonnie Prince Charlie in the raising of the standard, the romance of Scottish football, it just never dies. Mm. So from this wonderful Patrick Barclay Memorial Edition of Football Room My Life, thank you to Patrick Barclay and to John Holmes for his usual sensible, down-to-earth, very English, mm. Anglo-centric contribution. And also our indefatigable producer, Paul Kobrak, and telling you that we'll see you all next time on Football Room My Life, but asking you very much, everybody listening, to let us know what you think about the programme. You can find us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinmylife, all one word, at gmailruinmylife at gmail.com. <laughs> footballruinmylife at gmail.com. This is Colin Schindler saying thank you for listening. See you next time. We do record these episodes some time in advance in the belief that the subject matter is essentially timeless. However, there are occasions when events overtake us and we feel compelled to react to them. One such event was the death this week of the great Bobby Charlton. And we all have memories of him we want to share with you. He represented so much of our early lives by his magnificence as a player. And I think that applies not just to the three of us, but to everyone listening. So we're all going to say something briefly about what Bobby meant to us. And Paddy, why don't you start on what, what did Bobby Charlton mean to you? Thank you. You mentioned early lives. I grew up in Scotland and our biggest match of the season, which we were able to watch on television, was the Scotland-England match. One year early in Bobby's career, I think it was his first ever Scotland-England match, he came up to Hampden and we were used to giving as good as we got. We would hope to beat England, you know. But on this occasion, Bobby scored a great goal. It was a volley. I distinctly recall it being from a range of about 85 yards. (laughs) In actual fact, the television shows it to have been the edge of the penalty area. Great goals were few and far between with the pitches and the balls then. But Bobby seemed to score nothing else. And this was our introduction to Bobby Charlton. He scored this fantastic volley. And England won 4-0. Along with Bobby Moore, with these pristine white shirts of the three lines, he symbolised English superiority or reminded us of our inferiority complexes. And it was only later when I had the privilege through being a journalist of of meeting Bobby Charlton that I realised he was anything but a god. He was a humble man. So as a symbol of English greatness at that time and as later a symbol of humility among the greats, he would certainly stand very tall. Thank you, Paddy. John, I know you want to reference some of the great writers who've written about Bobby. What have you got for us? Well, there seems to have been a view that Bobby Charlton didn't do much in the 66 final, mostly written, I suspect, by people who weren't there, didn't see it and weren't around at the time. So I revert, as I often used to do, to the writings of Michael Venny, and this is his report on the game from the previous day. Many of their problems came from Bobby Charlton, wandering purposely all over the field, bringing composure and smoothness wherever he appeared again, 
making comparisons with Di Stefano seem relevant. Beckenbauer asked to rein in his own aggressive impulses to concentrate on subduing the Manchester United player was in for a thankless first half. And he concludes in his report, eventually Moore led his men up to the Royal Box to receive the Jules Rimet trophy from the Queen and the slow ecstatic lap of honour began. E.I. Adio, we've won the cup, sang the crowd, as Moore threw it in a golden arc above his head and caught it again. England had indeed won the cup, won it on their merits, producing a more determined aggression and flair than they'd shown in the earlier stages of the competition. As hosts, they had closed their World Cup with a glorious bang that obliterated memories of its grey negative beginnings. In such a triumph, there could be no failures. The very essence of Ramsey's England was their team play. But if one had to name outstanding heroes, they were Ball, Moore, Hurst and the brothers Charlton, the one exhibiting the greatness we always knew he had and the other attaining heights we never thought he could reach. And the final bit I wanted to read is a guy I never got to know. He died before I came, but he wrote these lines about Bobby Charlton, which I think sum up where we are. It is the explosive facets of his play that will remain in the memory. His thinning fair hair streaming in the wind. He has moved like a ship in full sail. He always possessed an elemental quality, jinking, changing feet and direction, turning gracefully on the ball or accelerating through a gap, surrendered by a confused enemy. I don't think one can sum up Bobby Charlton's play any better than that. My guess would be that was the pen of Geoffrey Green. It was indeed the pen of Geoffrey Green. Geoffrey Green, the writer for The Times. Well, I've got a little personal memory I want, I want to add to this because I saw a lot of Charlton in the 1960s and in a red shirt, Bobby Charlton was the enemy. In those Titanic 1960s derby matches, it was always Bobby Charlton who gave City the most cause for anxiety. Dennis Law rarely scored against us and George Best managed a total of one goal. But Bobby Charlton won matches almost on his own. When I saw him at Old Trafford, I was impressed by his effortless ability to strike 40-yard cross-field passes to the opposite wing with either foot. I never knew if he was right-footed or left-footed. So accomplished was he with either. And the crowd responded. How it responded. As he gathered the ball on the edge of the centre circle and ran with it towards the opposition goal, you could hear the home crowd start to gather in volume, expecting any second that he would let fly from 35 yards and the ball would arrow into the top corner like a shot from Roy of the Rovers. In a white England shirt, he was transformed into a hero. His goal-scoring record was astonishing for a man who was never an out-and-out striker. And the goal I will always remember is that first goal of the 1966 World Cup against Mexico. The whole country breathed a sigh of relief. We were on our way. The sobriquet football legend is conferred far too promiscuously. Bobby Charlton was one of the few who genuinely deserved it. Bobby Charlton died a couple of weeks after my great hero, Francis Lee. The two of them were an adornment not just to Manchester football, but to football in the entire country, if not the world. It's people our age, the most of our listeners, who will remember them with enormous affection. And I think that is why it is right that Paddy and John and I paid tribute to Bobby Charlton today. Charlton was a unique individual. 
and deserve that tribute. Thank you for listening to Football Ruin My Life. See you next time.